welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm back in the studio with Dr. Dan Morgan. Dan Morgan has a passion for medical use and hospital epidemiology, and he's going to talk to you about both topics. We also have Question of the Week, because after all, this is Plenary Session Season 2. And first, I'm going to have a few comments about last week's discussion of whether or not randomized control trials are needed or ethical for RET inhibitors. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. All right. Randomized control trials revisited. So I just wanted to talk about some comments and issues that were raised since my last discussion of the RET inhibitors. I think the crux of the argument there is when do you need randomized trials in biomedicine? Whatever field you may be. And the answer is for interventions that are hypothesized to have at best modest to marginal effect sizes. And they're the perfect and perhaps only way to separate a true effect from no effect, uh, detrimental effect, uh, from your hope, from your hype, from reality. And so they're essential. And so the question was, we can omit them, of course, for parachute interventions or interventions with massive improvement in, in mortality um, when the natural history is well known and well understood. And we went through the red inhibitor story and we just saw rather clearly that although a surrogate endpoint was modestly better than a surrogate endpoint from chemotherapy, something like 40-some percentage to 60-some percentage, um, that that surrogate endpoint was known to have a poor correlation with survival and that the actual observed PFS, a different surrogate endpoint, was not really that different. It wasn't a different ballpark kind of different between chemotherapy and the targeted agent. And thus, randomized trials were necessary to most likely confirm that you have a drug that's capable of improving PFS in the front line against standard of care chemotherapy, but maybe to surprise you and show that the novel drug is incapable of improving PFS in the front line against standard of care therapy, or might even have a decremental or, or negative effect on PFS compared to standard of care therapy. So that's really the purpose of the randomized trial. Um, somebody was saying that, you know, online, you know, we need randomized trials of drugs like Selenexer, and we don't need randomized trials like drugs like the RET inhibitor. And I wish, uh, you know, what I want to say is I think our whole scale is miscalibrated in oncology. I mean, Selenexor is a drug so ineffective, so inactive, with toxicity so great and fatal AEs so bad. That's the kind of drug we might not need a randomized trial because we don't need to pursue it, period, in drug development. We need better drugs for patients. The RET inhibitor is the kind of drug that does seem promising. And promising drugs are the kinds we need randomized studies for to separate hope from hype from reality. That's why we need the randomized study. So we probably want to be doing randomized studies for promising drugs that are not parachute interventions. And sadly, in oncology, parachute interventions have been few in number. Perhaps most recently was imatinib in 
in CML. Okay, so this podcast, I think, generated, um, I think, a good discussion online, and maybe people people learn something about randomization. Um, but one of the comments I heard today gave me a little bit of pause. This is from um, an account that doesn't have a name, but I think is a patient advocacy group, the Ross Wonders. Heard a plenary session 2.11 on the need for RCTs, even if phase two, ORR, and PFS high in targeted therapy. It omits a major point. How do patients feel and function on trial drug? AE is not enough. Need patient-centered PROs to compare quality of life for parachute determination. Okay, um, let me unpack this a little bit because I think it, it leads to some important kind of lessons about clinical trials. Okay, so one, um, you need randomized trials even if the phase two ORR and PFS is high. I think this is a bit of a misstatement here because the ORR is a little bit higher than prior ORRs observed from chemotherapy in a very small kind of fragmented data set, but the PFS really wasn't that much higher. It was about the same. In fact, I think a month lower, if I recall correctly, uh, it was really quite similar. So that's kind of a mistake to say. Um, it emotes a major point. How do patients feel and function on the drug? Okay, so this is what I wanted to say. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that it is really important that we have cancer drugs with better quality of life profiles that improve health-related quality of life. Um, if you look at many studies where health-related quality of life has improved, what you find is, for the most part, is that drugs that improve health-related quality of life often are also drugs that improve overall survival. Most of the drugs that make you feel better also make you live longer. They tend to go hand in hand. It is probably a bit unusual for a drug to not increase your life and improve your quality of life. Okay, that's one thing to say. The next thing to say is that just because a drug improves your survival doesn't mean it's a drug that's necessarily right for you. You want to know if there's a quality of life decrement. What are the side effects? Whether or not that burden is worth it to you, even if it improves quality of life. If two drugs have similar efficacy, that's when quality of life, of course, is the major tiebreaker. You want the drug with the, the better quality of life in that situation. Um, so I think what this person is alluding to is the fact that anecdotally, although I have not seen it explicitly reported, that patients on this red inhibitor um, felt pretty good. Um, that they didn't have sort of some of the side effects that can be seen with cytotoxic chemotherapy. I think there's, it's also worth pointing out that there are some people who have side effects from cytotoxic chemotherapy. There are also a lot of people who get cytotoxic chemotherapy who have minimal side effects. And simply because drugs are targeted doesn't necessarily mean that they have better side effects. I think many of us have given cytotoxic drugs on fixed schedule, and we've also given serafinib, um, even some of the first-generation targeted drugs in lung cancer. And we've had patients miserable on some of the targeted drugs, so I don't think that necessarily follows. You know, the best way to know if health-related quality of life is improved is actually, again, a randomized controlled trial. But I think the question being asked here is that, I think since they're alluding to the parachute determination, I think what they might be saying is that you can omit a randomized trial based on a historically controlled study with a comparable surrogate endpoint like PFS if the side effect profile is favorable. And that is a really incorrect and dangerous statement. So we'll just take one clear example, tumor treating electrical fields in mesothelioma. In an uncontrolled study of this device, there was a median OS of, if I recall correctly, it was 18 months or something like that, which appears favorable compared to historical cohorts of mesothelioma. But whether or not the device actually does anything is a big question mark. There's no randomized control trials there. And a lot of people rightly faulted that study. Why is this drug getting approval based on single arm uncontrolled overall survival, which could just be selection bias of who you put in the study? So that needs a randomized trial. That's also a product that probably has very little side effects because comparative to uh, a systemic therapy, um, I think besides some sort of topical irritation, there's probably minimal side effects there. So somebody might say that's a parachute because 
overall survival is better historically than historical averages, and the side effect profile is low. What I want to say here is that generally, side effect profile is not a reason to omit randomized control trials because many patients would accept improvements in quality of life with similar survival or maybe even a mild decrement in survival. But I don't know if many people would accept a better quality of life with a major loss in overall survival. And in fact, I think that if you actually measured health-related quality of life consistently, it actually, even though symptoms, side effects may be lower, you might have a decrement in quality of life because of the attrition in that arm of the study and your quality of life statistics. So what I want to say is that just because a drug or a pill or a device has a nice side effect profile and you think that's better than the side effect profile of the standard of care therapy, that's not a great reason to omit randomization. You need randomization to confirm that quality of life is better than the standard of care and to know what's the difference, if any, in efficacy. Is the efficacy comparable? Is it better? Or is it worse? And if it's worse, is it so much worse that that symptom profile benefit is worth it to you to forego that life extension benefit? So I guess I would say that I take very seriously how patients feel and function. That is something super important to me. And we have some unpublished studies on quality of life that I think are going to hit the field like a sledgehammer, because I think there are some structural problems with quality of life measurements. And that is probably the sequela of getting the conflicted industry to design and conduct these studies um, who are also selling their products. And, and that's the kind of gamesmanship you're going to have. So no, I think that if you are conceding that your RET inhibitor really has a comparable in the same ballpark PFS, and response rate that's only modestly better, but that's kind of a weak surrogate. Um, but the side effects are lower, ergo you can forego randomization. That is a very dangerous thing. And the folks at the TTF company, what is that TTF company name? Whatever that TTF company name is, uh, I, and I don't know the name because I haven't gone to their dinners, uh, that company would be happy to jump on that bandwagon and have a selection bias chosen patient trial that's uncontrolled and show you an OS comparable to benchmarks and say side effect profiles much better than pesky old chemotherapy or pesky old other drugs. So you don't need to randomize our product. They're happy to take advantage of this uh, loophole that you want to insert there. I think what also concerns me is that there are so many misunderstandings of studies. And there is this idea that doing studies that provide better clarity on benefits and harms is somehow anti-patient. And I think that's driven in part by the many, many industry-sponsored patient advocacy groups out there that receive predominant or large funding from the industry who perhaps engage in meetings and repeated interactions with conflicted KOLs. And they may not have actually had access to sort of an impartial education on clinical trials and the history of clinical trials. I mean, one example is the promesetabomb example I gave, where by response rate, it was that much better than CHOP. And by uncontrolled PFS, it was terrific, but it failed in the head-to-head randomized controlled trial, and it had greater side effects. And so, you know, that's a great example of why randomization is valuable. And there's many such examples. The history of medicine is littered with these examples. So I think the antidote is a book that's coming out called Malignant. Malignant, how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. And that's going to come out in the spring of next year in Johns Hopkins Press. And in this book, if you stick with it, you will get the education on how to think about clinical trials and all of the history of clinical trials that is important. And you will walk away from this book thinking, I hope, 
that the best thing we can do for people who suffer from a condition is generate reliable evidence about the real benefits and the real harms so that people can make choices that are most in line with their values and preferences. And the worst thing we can do is be Luddites and say, we don't need these studies. We know better. This should work. We feel better. The uncontrolled studies are conclusive. That's the worst thing we can do. We deprive many, many thousands more patients than on trials, an order of magnitude more patients, information that can help them make the right choice. That's one. And two, for one of the best things a philanthropist who wants to disrupt this space can do is to focus on patient advocacy groups who are truly non-conflicted um, and fund those groups I think Patients for Affordable Drugs by David Mitchell is one such group that have done a transformative job. And there are a number of groups that are really trying to deliver, I think, high-quality education about clinical trials. But I think it's important to get these details right. And I think if you start to have rules like, okay, our PFS can be comparable, our OS can be comparable, as long as our side effect profile looks better, um, we don't need a randomized trial, you will get every snake oil salesman in the business making a sugar pill or placebo, which has low side effects, and they will run trials in selection bias cohorts, and they will give you the data you think you want, and you will be riddled with products that don't make you better off and are probably inferior to older drugs with side effects that if you had a clear understanding of the harms and benefits, you would choose instead. Okay, I have to add one more thing before the interview because while, while I was doing that monologue, I asked somebody to run the names on this website and they emailed me back and I had to go outside my office and talk to them because I was like, are you sure? This is crazy talk. But on the website, Ross Wonders, there's a list of quote-unquote experts in Ross One, you can just click on the list, uh, Ross One Experts. Uh, and, and there's a list of names, and two of those people are outside the United States, which is not subject to conflict of interest disclosure laws, but the rest are in the United States. And looking at just the 2018 personal payments to the doctor's bank account, not to research, not for collaboration, but personal payments for consulting, honoraria, travel, et cetera, et cetera. The mean personal payment in this cohort is And the percent that have a conflict among those in whom we can assess conflict through the U.S. Open Payments Act is 100%. I don't know what to say here. This will will break this field. This will really break this field. I think that, you know, I've tried to make this point. Um, In a number of disease types, you have every person who is a self-proclaimed or proclaimed by some group expert in that disease type deeply conflicted with the industry. These are not trivial amounts of money. This exceeds the average household income in this country of a family of four is conflict exceeds that amount of money. These kinds of relationships distort the entire thought process around the efficacy of anti-cancer drugs and how they must be assessed. We cannot have this. This has to stop. No wonder. I mean, I I guess I'm not surprised that I hear the vociferous, passionate, and very nearly constant cry from patient advocates, quote-unquote, through industry-sponsored organizations who are mostly listening to conflicted experts say, we don't need randomized trials, we don't need good control arms, we don't need post-protocol therapy, we don't need uh, crossover used appropriately, which we've detailed in many studies, we can have bad evidence, patients want access, um, 
They are really doing that huge disservice to the field, a huge disservice to patients with this disease when you have many, many products with so much uncertainty on the U.S. market and that these are not parachutes and they're not transformative products. And you have really a poor documentation of the natural history of, of how outcomes are without these products, making these kind of historical his, even calling it historical controlled is kind of a misstatement. It's really a historical, uh, what does my gut tell me about how these people should have done? Not a formal historical controlled study. It doesn't even meet that bar. Um, and, and so I guess I'm blown away that this is so high. It's such a high conflict. I mean, every time you look, every time you look, if you find somebody saying the cost of drugs is acceptable, we need to sequence everybody in America with cancer, and that we don't need randomized controlled trials, look a little deeper, or that you need to shave your head and place a helmet on it uh, that gives tumor-treating electrical fields in a non-sham control study, look a little deeper and you find conflict of interest. That's what we find in all the studies. And if you look at the editorials that take the other stance, you very often find very little conflict of interest. This is a problem in the field, and I think there has been zero professional motivation to deal with this problem. And this problem will one day um, be a major problem in this field. I think I, I see it as a major loss of credibility of this field will be these personal payments, which do not have to happen I gave a lecture at Pfizer twice in the last year, and you will find zero personal payments. You'll find they didn't pay for my travel, and they didn't pay for my meals, and I didn't eat or drink anything while I was there. Because you can interact with someone, you can deliver them a lecture that I hope they found interesting and provocative, and I hope gets them to do some good clinical studies in the future, because I do think there is an alignment to some degree between the industry and good studies. There's also a deviation to some degree. Um, and and, and I, I'm able to preserve my impartiality about all their products, which if they do a bad study, I'm going to be the first to rip two bits on this podcast. All right. On that note, we'll jump to our interview with Dr. Dan Morgan. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Dan Morgan, who's professor of medicine at the University of Maryland. He's a practicing infectious disease doctor, and he works on the Hospital Epidemiology and Infection Control Committee, or group. Um, I see. I guess I, I direct the program. You direct I think the it's program. So you're the man that we should hold responsible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for every, every uh, VA policy. Every VA <laughs> policy. And then um, I guess I should give a little bit more background about you. That you know, you and I have known each other for a few years now, and um, we became friends through, I think, shared interest on on overuse. Um, but you have kind of a diverse career, and hospital infection control has been a long-standing interest, and you've done really kind of seminal work in that field as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly my home has been hospital epidemiology and infection control. Um, when I came out of ID training, I was with a group that did good research and. Um, the national organization has been, uh, I think, very supportive, and uh, and and so that that's very much where I started. But I've always had an interest, just clinically, in overuse and the problems of uh, not really knowing how to to best deliver healthcare. Oh, that's well put. Um, and let me ask you a few questions, which I don't know the answer to, Dan. I, even though we've known each other all these years, uh, you did your medical school where? Medical school in University of Rochester. In Rochester. And then your residency and fellowship? I, oh, I should jump back. And uh, most importantly, college for some of, of your course. listeners. Uh-huh. That I know. You know, read, read college. Read, yes. yep. Go Griffins. <laughs> <laughs> Which is right here in Portland, and it's a beautiful campus. Yeah. Um, so yeah, back to um, yeah, residency. I stayed in Rochester for internal medicine. Okay. And then uh, I went to Cornell for fellowship in ID, but I went to Brazil for two years with them and then came back to, to New York City. As part of your fellowship, you're in Brazil? Yeah. Oh, That's wow. how I started it. Moved to Brazil. And, and where in Brazil? In Salvador, Bahia. 
Oh. It's like kind of northeast, uh-huh. more more rural, not not a lot of infrastructure there. And what did you work on in Brazil? Um, I wanted to do tropical medicine, so I showed up, and there was somebody who did research with leishmaniasis and chagas. Um, Chagas, they had just a teeny bit. There was a clinic I would see people in, but uh, you had to be kind of out in the rural area to to get Chagas. Um, And then uh, uh, HTLV-1. Oh, yes. The the original retrovirus. The original retrovirus. And we still, you know, see some of the... um the HTLV1-associated T-cell lymphomas I have seen over the years. But tell me about leishmaniasis. Uh, what does one need to know about leishmaniasis that one might have forgotten over the years? <laughs> <laughs> for, 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 yes, for people who have forgotten some key points. Um, I mean, leishmaniasis is, is really interesting, uh, I think, scientifically, because it... Um, there's a lot of immunology that's been defined by leishmaniasis, mm-hmm. Th1, Th2, that mm-hmm. type of thing, but all in mice. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in humans, it's pretty much neglected. Um, mm-hmm. And there's sort of two main types. Uh, there's a skin ulcer type that sometimes causes mucocutaneous, like mm-hmm. uh, in the nose and mouth. And, and then there's the visceral form, mm-hmm. which usually they occur in separate areas with separate organisms. And one form is a Th2 and one is a Th1 response. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Um, and which is which? Oh, I see. This is a... I, I've, I've tried to stop thinking uh, about immunology uh, a long time ago. But uh, um, I, I believe that uh, there's not uh, enough Th2 response in... Which, which one would that be? Um, visceral, maybe. Yeah, p- potentially visceral. Um, you know, I, I know there's listeners who'll probably know this right away, so <laughs> I, I won't jump into that. But I would say also that um, w- within, um, I s- mostly saw people's skin and mucocutaneous uh, disease at the clinic uh, where I was. And, uh, and you would see a range of funny diseases. Like we saw people with, uh, people who had pregnancy often had very strange forms of leishmaniasis, hmm. presumably th- from some change in uh, the immune system. Um, which, which is interesting because it's hard to see that much in the way of changes in the immune system with pregnancy. And what were the treatments that you were administering in Brazil at the time? Uh, so the primary treatment that was funded by the government was um, we, we would see like about 40 or 50 people a day in this rural clinic and they would show up at 6 a.m. wait in line. We would uh, say, yeah, that ulcer looks like leishmaniasis. And then we'd give them a bunch of uh, little bottles of antimony mm. and say, uh, well, there's somebody in your village who uh, the person who injects dogs with leishmaniasis, they can inject it in you and do IV push. And um, that's how we treated it. IV push antimony. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and then people would come back and uh, you'd ask them about side effects and they'd say, no, 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 not really. I don't have any side effects. And then you ask specifically and they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I had some chills and fevers and uh, rigors, but no big deal. And do you inject it into the cutaneous lesions themselves or is, you said the IV systemically? These were, these were actually systemic IV. Wow. I mean, people have, I think there are some different treatments that may have like um, injection around the lesions and there are some oral options, but those weren't available at the time um, then. And it is a parasite that's transmitted by that sand fly. Yeah, exactly. But the lesions that appear on the skin are not necessarily at the bite of the sand fly. It's a disseminated parasite or? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think the thinking is the, the um, often there's a lesion at the initial site, but then uh, it can track up lymphatics. So you oh. can see like sort of like a, a yeah. line of lesions up someone's arm. Like my sporotrixis. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, that's, uh, <laughs> we didn't plan on talking about this. Okay, so you're in Brazil for two years. You're doing this work. Then you came back to Cornell one year in New York City. And then you, was your first faculty position at University of Maryland? Yeah. Um, I moved to Baltimore for family reasons and uh, sort of volunteered a bit and managed to uh, find a a faculty position there uh, when I finished fellowship. 
and that wasn't the at the VA. Yeah, um, technically VA and university, mm-hmm. like we are like OHSU, where uh, there's just a bridge that connects them. So yeah. uh, most people are part time at both. I see. And um, your initial kind of research focus for the first part of your career was really hospital acquired infections and infection control in the hospital. Yeah, um, early on I got a, um, a K award trying to look at um, isolation of patients. And there, there was an article in JAMA at that time that had uh, shown there were maybe more adverse events with isolation, mm-hmm. as well as there was a massive push to have more isolation and this screening everybody. Late 1990s then? Um, really sort of mid 2000s uh-huh. is when it really kind of kicked into high gear with community acquired MRSA, um, making the public very worried about MRSA. But I remember a JAMA paper from, I forget when it came out, but it looked at patients placed on isolation had much less contact with providers, fewer people visited them, they had fewer sort of human-to-human interactions. Yeah, there, there were a few early ones. Um, there, there was one certainly showing that um, there is less contact between healthcare workers and patients. And then there was um, a retrospective, essentially chart review, looking at adverse events. And they found that people who were on isolation had more a- adverse events than people who were not. Mm. Although, of course, the patients uh-huh. who ha- are on uh, isolation yeah. tend to be sicker than those who are not. Right. Potential confounder there. But also maybe uh, a real mechanism that, to some degree, their care might be neglected or short-shrifted because they're getting a doctor who lays eyes on them more seldomly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that I think that, that narrative made a lot of sense to clinicians. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, I think most of us realize that it's kind of a pain to go into the room if you have to put on gowns and gloves. And so you won't see them as frequently or as casually. Over the years, I've observed some senior faculty engaging in dubious behavior, like wanting to speak to a patient on contact precaution, but just sticking the head into the door so they wouldn't <laughs> have to do the gown and gloves. Uh, you know, things that we might frown upon a little bit. Um, so I guess let's just talk about that, contact precautions. Contact precautions in this country have been something that has become widespread. Um, a lot of people do it. A lot of people spend a lot of resources doing it, both in terms of uh, the actual cost of the gown and the gloves, but also in terms of the systems that are needed to track who may be screened positive for MRSA or VRE, uh, and to put the sign on the door and to wheel the cart there and, you know, the whole system behind it bringing this to fruition. And I guess, like so many things in medicine, it's bioplausible that if the patient is colonized with a pathogenic resistant microbe, um, that the less uh, contact you have with them, the more you can sort of segregate them and their um, uh, infectious products and infectious touch, uh, the less likelihood you are to spread that pathogen to other patients. Um, So it's plausible. It has a mechanism of action that you don't really need to know much biology to understand. You know, this is about spreading by touch. Um, And yet the evidence for this has always been kind of disputed. Um, And I know you've done, you're an author of one of the seminal randomized studies in the field. I guess, where do you want to jump in on this? Yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about about isolation, where it came from, and, and the research you've done. Yeah, so um, I was thinking it's hard to, to know where to start even on something that I've spent probably 12 years working on, and my boss disagrees with me on, and mm-hmm. <laughs> we go back and forth. But um, uh, so contact precautions are generally meant to be the, the use of gowns and gloves for entering a patient's room or providing care, and usually um, only used in acute care hospitals and for patients with MRSA, VRE, and then to a lesser extent, probably C. diff, and then some of the resistant gram-negative organisms. 
And uh, the CDC has essentially recommended this from 2007 on. Um, their recommendation, um, there were little caveats that you could essentially say, well, we meet the CDC recommendations, but we're not using it. Um, but essentially they recommend it, and then they came out, I think, uh, in the past year or so, really stating uh, directly that they recommend contact precautions for MRSA in the hospital. Oh, they came out even more forcefully despite these studies? Yeah, I mean, mm. there's, um, I mean, because contact precautions, really, I, I think uh, when I was uh, start in junior faculty, like around 2008, um, it seemed hard to imagine that you wouldn't use contact precautions. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Although there were a few hospitals that were kind of quietly not using it, like Dartmouth didn't use it, UCSF didn't use it, um, a few other places kind of never started and then never uh, never stopped, even though in the past five years, a lot of places have stopped using contact precautions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this was the landscape 2007-2008, um, recommended by the CDC. And what was the basis for the recommendation at the outset? Um, it was a lot of, um, I think it was bioplausible, as you said, which is, I mean, I think key for a lot of infection control things we do. It was um, known from studies that like we and others have done that like you get a certain amount of bacteria on your gowns and gloves when you leave the room. Like you can find MRSA on somebody's gloves 20% of the time if they, they cared for a patient with MRSA. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, there were these observational studies often during outbreaks where there's an outbreak of MRSA and we do a lot of things. Like we put everybody on gowns and gloves, we close the unit, we get people to wash hands better, et cetera, and the outbreak goes away. Mm -hmm. and, and this was one of the things we did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, people say, well, it's a bundle or it's hard to know exactly what the different contribution is, but we should just start using it. And there were a few people who really promoted this heavily. Um, mostly out of University of Virginia or um, Pittsburgh, et cetera, where mm -hmm. they, they sold this as the, the solution to MRSA at a time where MRSA was really in the news as, mm -hmm. as a bad problem. Superbug. Superbug, and, and, you know, and there were, it was finally killing young, healthy people, mm -hmm. although notably those people didn't get it in the hospital. They got it from you know, mm -hmm. a football locker room or right, something. Right, right, community-acquired MRSA. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So it made a lot of sense. It had vocal proponents. There was circum certainly circumstantial evidence that this would theoretically decrease transmission. Um, and yet you took the next step um, as part of the bug investigators, B-U-double-G, <laughs> yeah. and, and their star ICU. Yeah, so there there's a, there've been a few cluster trials and the the bug study um <laughs> kind of funnily named uh named uh, benefits of universal gloving and gowning um was started by by my mentor at Maryland who uh very much is is generally a proponent of contact precautions and he thought this would be a better intervention. So we looked at hospitals where they were using contact precautions and said in addition use gowns and gloves for all contact in that ICU. So it was kind of contact precautions versus more than contact precautions. Mm -hmm. Okay. But is often taken as, I think, some of the better evidence to look at gowns and gloves and if they prevent transmission. Mm -hmm. and, and what did you find? So uh, we looked at 20 hospitals. Ten of them did the intervention. Ten of them didn't. Um, and essentially, on, on the primary outcome, which was MRSA or VRE, there was no effect. Mm -hmm. Um and but then like in a sub-analysis this is what like my boss will argue with me so this is mm -hmm. what i'm pointing out the um, post talk i remember <laughs> this there there was a decrease in mrsa although essentially the the decrease was those units that were randomized to the intervention had a higher rate at baseline and it went down to about the same level mm -hmm. um, as the other units who were control i see i guess one thing maybe to explain to listeners a little bit is that 
when you use the word cluster, you're referring to a cluster randomized controlled trial, which is a type of randomization at which randomization is not performed at the individual patient level, but at a unit or larger on block. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. So why did you choose cluster randomization and why does it make sense here? Yeah, so I mean, cluster um, randomization is often used for interventions where you can't really affect just one person. So say if you isolate somebody in an ICU, it's usually not going to impact that one patient. It'll impact the patient next to them who doesn't get MRSA. Um, this is often used for like vaccine studies or nutritional studies where they um, replete vitamin A or something. Mm -hmm. um, so something where you couldn't really look at the effect on an individual patient, but you need to look at a group. Mm, well put. And also it's nice for interventions that require uh, a systems-wide thinking sh paradigm shift, a systems-wide shift, because it might be difficult for a hospital to have one system for one group of people and another system for another group of people. It's easier for a single institution to just switch their system and then compare across institutions. Yeah, no, that's another good point. And I, I think it's one of the more kind of pragmatic approaches to, to trials um, that it is sort of looking at real life interventions, you know, in a functioning facility. All right, that's well put. Um, and, and so BUG was in, in essence and technically a negative study on the primary endpoint. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, it was interesting um, that that you brought this up in in your book of medical reversals, yeah, which yeah. Uh, I sort of chuckled at because my boss <laughs> didn't, didn't didn't have the same in, impression <laughs> of it. Yeah, um, but yeah, so I mean, I think as far as any clinical trial is concerned, this is a negative um, study, and there's some hypothesis generating ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I mean, we, we did look at some other things like adverse events and if gowns and gloves led to more adverse events, because yeah. we did see you didn't go in the room as often if you had to wear gowns and gloves. Oh, you did see that? Yeah. Oh. So there was a decrease in room entry, um, which, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's actually bad necessarily. Um, uh -huh. You know, it went from like uh, three visits an hour to two visits an hour or something. I see. Um, but we also look at adverse events with a chart review, which was a... a kind of a, a big burden to the study to look at uh, all these chart reviews for people. But we also didn't find a change in adverse events. That's interesting. Um, and I guess because there's, I mean, three visits an hour to two visits an hour is a lot of visits, but we're talking about intensive care units, so that explains why that's that's so high. Um, tell us about the other trial, the sort of, n not paired, but similar study, STAR ICU, which appeared probably a few years before in the New England Journal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, STAR ICU was, uh, was What's, uh, there's a lot of controversy around it that uh, uh -huh. people still talk about. Um, so it was a study that was looking at um, active surveillance for MRSA and then isolation of those patients. So if you look at um, a hospital and you are using isolation, if you just use it for clinical cultures, so those people who are just identified incidentally when you're trying to treat them normally, about 10% of people will be identified with MRSA and isolated. Whereas if you actually swab everybody in their nose when they come into the hospital, you pick up a, a lot of asymptomatic carriers and you isolate about 25% of people. And I just want to point out that, you know, when I was training, that's what we were doing. We would do uh, swabs on everyone at entry into the hospital. I think in part because people had a desire to document MRSA on entry to prove that we didn't give it to MRSA on the back end. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, it, certainly I would say that that is one of the uh, the benefits to a facility is that you, um, it's, you can prove that you didn't give them MRSA, <laughs> that they had it when they came in. Right. Um, a lot of places still use active surveillance. Yes. The, the entire VA um, healthcare system uses active surveillance wow. in uh, acute care, nursing homes, and in uh, some other facilities. And if you were screened positive in this study, you were placed on gown and glove precautions. And the study also looked at transmission of MRSA and VRE. Correct. 
Oh, and, and they had a kind of a funny protocol bit that uh, the idea was that uh, people may have not um, done cult screening cultures that well at each facility. So they actually had them send the cultures to the um, NIH where they were running all of the cultures and then sending the results back. So they had this funny thing where um, they'd have people wear um, gloves alone until they got the results back because it took about four days to get the results back from the NIH. Mm, that's a so, bit problematic. <laughs> so this is where the controversy comes yeah. in. Is uh, it, it was a, a very much a negative study. It yeah. found no effect. Um, and it was a study that I think killed the people who ran it. And it was a, a whole lot of work to get cluster all these different uh, facilities and um, have them do this intervention. But then it was negative. Um, and uh, before it even came out, there was a, a big proponent of active surveillance for MRSA who wrote an editorial in, in Clinical Infectious Diseases um, saying why you shouldn't pay attention to the result of this study. Irrespective of what it shows. Yeah, he because... wanted to get his message out there before. Mm. <laughs> but let me ask you this. What was the name of the randomized control trial, the cluster randomized trial? that showed gown and glove precautions does reduce transmission of a bacteria? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I'm not familiar with that one. There's no such study. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, so I think that's, isn't that interesting thing about like, not just, I mean, even broader than infectious disease, broader than this, is that we do often enter these situations in biomedicine where you have a negative study and you can, I think, legitimately say, look at this, look at that, look at this. This doesn't really mirror what we do. Um, it also allows for the potential, like a logical, that this wouldn't work. Um, but on the flip side, a proponent of this who's coming to the table and they are asked, what evidence do you have that this works? Um, they don't have a lot of evidence. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a theme that, uh, that that we've shared, and it's one that bothers me all the time, that uh, the, the, the evidence required to get something into practice is often minimal and just kind of theoretical. But then uh, the people who don't, don't want to let go of that practice, um, you know, they, they don't even accept randomized trials not showing an effect because they say, well, the, you know, there are problems with the trial. So right. it's kind of a very low bar to get something started and then a high bar to, to stop doing something. Right. Yeah, I think that that is, a, that is interesting. Um, and it's particularly interesting given that in the history of medicine, if one were to make a list of every idea that somebody thought was bioplausible at the time based on their best models and all of the things that we know actually do work, the first list is going to be super, super long and the second list is going to be super, super short. Uh, so like pretest probability that something plausible will work is low. And so if you shift the burden of proof on the critic or skeptic, you kind of create sort of this impossible situation where there's no filter on the front end and you're just going to have a truckload of things that don't do anything. And that's modern medicine. <laughs> that's <right>? modern medicine. <laughs> so why don't we talk a little bit about that? You're doing all this work on infectious disease. And I guess to some degree, since you are the director of the hospital infection control unit, you must kind of feel some duality here. Because uh, <laughs> you must be recommending some things that you don't have terrific evidence. You don't have randomized trial for yeah, no, no. I mean, I very much feel <laughs> that there's a duality, and um, 
I mean, I, I think I remember uh, a, a mentor of mine um, it, it, who was at Cornell and Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, Kent Sepkowitz, who, mm. um, oh, you love, may have, yeah. okay, yeah. I, mean, I used to read his articles in New York Times. I, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So a very talented guy um, who just, you know, would casually write articles for the New York Times. But uh, I remember him during, a, I think, a small outbreak saying, uh, well, you know, this won't make any difference, but, you know, here's what we do. Boom, 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 boom. Um, so there's kind of two roles. You, you have sort of what do you think really matters and what do you know we need to do based upon policies and just protecting the institution, uh, that sort of thing. Mm, interesting. And, and that's especially true in the VA where a lot of things are federal policies. So I can argue with people who are making the policy um, which they do usually like invite me to the table for infection control they do. discussions. But then at the end they vote <laughs> and uh, we just keep doing what we're doing. So so it's an eminence-based policy. Yeah, well, and it's really, um, I mean, I think it's a Congress-based policy that uh, it, Congress essentially does oversight of the VA and that's the huge fear if you're a VA leader that Congress will call you in for something. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of risk aversion and it's usually, well, what does the CDC say? Well, that's what we're doing. I see. So, I mean, I guess what you're saying is like, is it fair to say that a powerful motivation in the infection control space is that players don't want to appear as if they didn't take an action that they could have taken? I think, I think public health generally, but infection control certainly. Um, and knowing that things will go bad a, a certain amount of the time um, and trying to show that you've done everything possible hmm. to prevent that. And then the flip side is when you do say, hey, everyone, listen up, we have an outbreak situation here. Oftentimes things are going to get better because of a, like a Hawthorne effect. Um, people are all going to be more vigilant, all maybe washing their hands, all maybe being a little bit more careful. And even in the absence of any gown and gloves policies, that infection might be quelled. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a really a key part of infection control and why the, why the evidence is tricky to interpret, that uh, we have lots of outbreaks. That's how infection control really started, was being the person who helped out with outbreaks and helped them to stop being an outbreak. And uh, and so when you have an outbreak, people start paying attention to a lot of things. Um, you know, they try to do everything carefully. They try to avoid things like even seeing the patient can be difficult sometimes in an outbreak. Um, and then there's regression to the mean, which plays a big role in outbreaks that, uh, you know, systems will go back into order. So even doing nothing, um, often the outbreak will will stop on its own. Let me ask you, imagine there was an ancient culture um, who archaeologists discover was from time to time plagued by some sort of ancient plague, maybe some respiratory virus that we don't quite have today or some sort of bloodborne pathogen or, you know, some sort of some sort of contagious human epidemic. And this society would be faced with this from time to time, and this society was also bureaucratic. And over time, the society evolved that every time the plague would come, they knew to slaughter 25 goats. <laughs> Do you see how such a society could have evolved to slaughter those goats every time with the fervent belief that the slaughtering of those goats would help the plague? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's, that's a great example. And um, you know, you may have to adjust that over time from 20 to 25 or right. 40, depending and maybe on if it works. slaughter enough goat, right, yeah. <laughs> and, and the time that you slaughtered the goats and it didn't work. And I guess what I wish to suggest is, are we much better than that society? I mean, I, I think this is a, a good question for, you know, for what we do in terms of outbreaks, um, you know, that there is a, a superstitious quality to it. 
Um, and, and, you know, outbreaks are scary and they do, you know, get better. Um, it, it's uh, generally. So, um, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there probably are some things that we do better, but there's a lot to, uh, to be learned from that approach too, to be skeptical about, you know, did we really change reality, mm-hmm. um, by what we did? You know, and we see this, I think, in, in clinical medicine, too. I remember a neurologist when I was in training saying, uh, hurry up and do something before they get better. <laughs> right. And then um, I saw this uh, nice New Yorker cartoon recently, and it said, uh, hurry up and take your probiotics before we learn they don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be back with more of the interview. But first, let's take a break for a question of the week. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Audrey Tran for questions from Audrey Tran. Audrey, it's great to have you here. (laughs) Great to be here. Questions from a medical student. I was going to say, you changed up the title. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to have you back. So listeners have been a big fan of this segment. They've uh, emailed me. They've tweeted to me. They say they really enjoy these questions, partly because they're very, very difficult questions, and I probably do a (laughs) poor job answering them. So what's on the docket this week, Audrey? Yeah, sure. So I guess to start out, I maybe would like to start with an anecdote and then lead into my question. Mm, but um, I'm part of, uh, on Facebook, I'm part of a couple of groups about healthcare policy. And these are just kind of healthcare enthusiasts, both uh, professional healthcare policy experts, as well as just people interested in learning more. Uh, and I see actually your name pop up a couple times, mm, no, no. just no, in, in, a, in actually a very positive light because Good. they're referencing Good. you and saying, um, you know, have you heard about this doctor? He's helping us understand a little bit about what it means to kind of advocate for ourselves in, uh, in medicine and like for our own health. Hmm. Um, and I just thought that was very interesting because I, those are two worlds, if that makes sense to mm-hmm. me, that mm-hmm. there's this academic world and then kind of Facebook where I'm just learning things. But to find uh, my professor kind of crossing the spheres, um, mm-hmm. it was just kind of a funny, funny moment. And I guess my question for you today is, I know that like part of the, I think the draw of a podcast and and kind of speaking out is that you have, I think this ability to speak out both cogently and compellingly um, and it's made ripple effects both here in the Institute OHSU and I think beyond. Um, and what is your philosophy? Do you consider that, was that intentional? Do you consider that like part of your job? Um, to me, I guess it kind of speaks to this idea of being a physician advocate. And I wonder if you consider yourself a physician advocate or what even that word means to you. Okay, that's a tough question. Wow. Well, thank you for your very kind summary of of things. Um, I guess your question is, do I see myself as a physician advocate? I guess I would say that this probably ties into another question that I I know you're going to ask me because you sent me a list of few things (laughs) you might ask me about. which is what do you define as a successful career? And mm-hmm. I guess we can talk about that more in a future segment. But the reason I think they're kind of related is because I guess in my particular case, I don't feel like I do research because I want to be a researcher. I feel like I do research because I, I cared about a few topics. And the few topics mm-hmm. I care about, I think, are just generally how we use evidence in medicine to incorporate new practices, to use existing practices. How have we embraced evidence-based medicine and how have we not embraced it despite all these years? Um, How do we approve cancer drugs and are we approving them in a way that balances speed and access with information that people want? And these kind of related themes. I mean, there's only a handful of, of topics that I do research on and I feel kind of very passionate about and I do research on it not because I wanted to be a researcher but because I felt 
as if there were large misunderstandings there, lots of things unknown, and a lot of behavior that I thought doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think on this podcast, I talk about that over and over again. Uh, So when you say, you know, did I set out to be an advocate? I guess I'd say that, you know, I set out to learn more about these topics. And so for the first few years, you know, when I was learning about what response rate is or PFS, say if you want to take the issue of surrogate endpoints in cancer, you didn't hear me talk about that too much. I really wanted to master an understanding of that, where it came from, how it was used, how people think about it, and and then started to ask questions that were pretty earnest questions like, do these correlate with survival or quality of life? So we published a paper in 2015 in JAMA Internal Medicine that probed that. And, you know, the more you kind of ask very simple questions, it's partly the way any good student would ask questions because, you know, you really want to know why you're doing what you're doing or what you're told to do. I think you might reach some answers that don't satisfy you, that uh, make you wonder why. That's not really a good answer. Um, And yet we're endorsing this, we're recommending this, what's really going on? And so, you know, this kind of led to a lot of work on conflict of interest because part of me feels like too many smart people are making, you know, too many erroneous statements and they're smart enough to know better, I think. So then you get into the sort of this conflict of interest and how that plays a role. And so anyway, so then I started to like really think a lot more about these issues. And then I feel like if you want to shape the way other people think about these issues and hopefully get them to think about them in a more honest way, you have to spend as much time communicating what you found as finding things to show them. Mm -hmm. And the communication Mm -hmm. is just equally important. Mm -hmm. And so insofar as anyone is interested in my tweets or articles or blog posts, I feel that it might be because I spend a lot of time thinking about what's the best way to convey this idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just um, dumping a lot of facts on somebody, but what's the best way to actually get them to make sense of it and hopefully shape their thinking. And so The reason this ties into your other question about what is a successful career um, is because I think the way I would define success would be by no metric of what happens to me as a person, um, but by every metric of how other people in oncology think about these things. And so success Mm -hmm. would be if a lot of young people, a lot of practicing doctors start to have an honest conversation about how we use surrogate endpoints and how evidence is often lacking and how oncology appears to have been missed by the evidence-based medicine bus uh, mm-hmm. on our way to uh, exciting new therapies, how we may hype things and how we have some deep structural problems in the way in which money flows through healthcare that encourages these fallacies to persist and how all of this is sort of not in the best interest of patients. And so I would define success as when the majority of oncologists would agree that all these things are problematic and that we need to reform them. And so I think we are away from success as I would define it, but I do see some modest success, which is that podcasts like this can be listened to by many people. And many times I'm giving lectures around the country and around the world, and people come up to me and they say, you know, I really enjoyed your podcast on caplicizumab uh, with Sven Olsen. You're absolutely right. All that does is improve <laughs> platelets or, you know, whatever. You pick one of the examples. I really liked your talk on polo. And, and as long as you're talking about that, what do you think it means for, you know, and they give another example that I hadn't thought of. And so they're taking some principle that, you know, we try to articulate on this podcast and they're applying it to a new scenario. Sure. So that to me is a type of success that somebody's starting to think the right way, which is a, an evidence-based mindset about these things. So I guess I would say to your question, I guess I wouldn't view it as advocacy because I think that term is kind of loaded. And Mm -hmm. I guess the reason I think it's loaded is that some people view honest empirical evidence generation 
to be distinct from advocacy. And they may be right or wrong. They're probably wrong. But I view it as if you do honest empirical work to generate evidence or data that informs policymaking, then advocacy to me means communicating that as effectively and parsimoniously and succinctly as possible so that it actually gets into someone's mind. You know, we have this old saying in oncology, which is like a drug you can't afford is no better than no drug at all. And um, evidence you don't understand or can't be conveyed simply is no better than no evidence at all because it can't shape the minds mm -hmm. of anyone who's making decisions. So we have to think about that too. And I do think that the people who are the best at research, you know, who write many, many papers that are high profile journals, who have done a marvelous job of explaining concepts, part of what makes them really successful is they're a good communicator. And we forget that, that that's why their papers are so good, because they've distilled this issue to a few fundamental things, and then they hit the nail right on the head. Yeah, that's a really good point. That, that quote was really interesting that you um, mentioned, just because I feel like there's, there's something about just generating information, you know, for your own satisfaction or for information's sake. And then another, another step for me is about figuring out how do you how do you convey that, especially when people may not even know that they're interested in that sort of stuff? Um, for example, like I don't even think I was even aware of evidence-based medicine mm -hmm. um, before you started medicine, right? Yeah, yeah, before before kind of coming into OHSU, and it but it's so essential, just not even for the practice of medicine, but just a philosophy of life. I think. Is yeah, just, um, I agree. It applies to everything: evidence-based policy making, evidence-based education, mm -hmm. evidence-based, you know, um, public health. You know, yeah, it does. Exactly. It, it is really sort of a universal acid. But the other thing it makes me think about is that there will always be people who disagree with you about the evidence or about the facts or about the interpretation of the evidence. There may be people who are dug in or set in their ways, and I think when you really seek to communicate well, people unfortunately use that as a, a, a mark against you. They actually try to use it against you. Mm. So, you know, I often hear somebody say, um, oh, you know, uh, the only reason, you know, people like this guy's ideas is because he's like, you know, tweeting a lot and, uh, and, you know, he occasionally tweets with some snarky tone or something like that. And I'm like, look, buddy, <laughs> if you think that the only reason an idea is getting broad acceptance is that somebody's tweeting with a snarky tone, you don't know anything about the internet. Everyone's out there with a <laughs> snarky tone they're not getting any traction you have to be right on the issue and mm -hmm. and and trying to communicate effectively to broader audiences it should not be held against somebody as an academic uh, in fact that's a strength of being an academic and right. not a not a limitation but I think there are a lot of people who view it the other way um, and then I do find that sometimes people engage in rebuttals that try to trick the audience because they say, oh, this was all wrong, but they don't actually get into the nitty gritty of why it's all wrong. And the more they did do that, people would be able to judge for themselves who's right and who's right, wrong, right. and they may not win that debate. People like to say things like, oh, talk about what you're qualified to talk about, creating this arbitrary standard of what's, what is the qualification. And apparently the qualification typically is whether or not somebody agrees with them, because that's like, you know, <laughs> you know, if they agree with them, they never say that. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, people create all these kind of, um, I, I would say classic fallacies of argument, of debate, of reason. And um, places like Twitter, um, they don't survive, I think. Actually, I think that people in the audience can see through them. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, another way in which we communicate better is it's not just being succinct and accurate. It's that when you debate somebody, you're debating them in a very concrete, matter-of-fact way, pointing to the limitations, and you're not engaging in these sort of sidetrack conversations. And I think that's something I try to do, mm -hmm. you know, a lot. 
And I think it's something that sometimes people argue with me don't try to do. And I think that's why, you know, the audience will vote. Um, and sure. sometimes they do vote against mm-hmm. against that. One of the things that actually that reminded me of when you said, I guess, that it's not just style without any substance it will fall flat. Like it right. only goes so far. Exactly. Sure, maybe like a, it has a one quick viral moment, but right. it does not have longevity. Right. Um, and that actually reminds me of kind of some principles of songwriting and music in that sense where it's a little bit different because we're just trying to articulate. It's a different type of information, I guess, but um, but it's like there are certain songs and certain words that just stay with you because they were said succinctly, but the idea behind it is what's actually really powerful. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. of course, there's a catchy tune or there's some sort of rhyme or, or you know, flashy way to say it, but ultimately it, the substance is like if the idea resonates with someone, it's going, that's, that's the pulling power, I suppose. I see. So even some of these pop songs that often mm-hmm. get dismissed as being cliche, mm-hmm. they really are speaking to sort of deep human truths, and that's why they're really sticking with yeah, people. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I think so. There's more to that than, than, we, are, than we are ready to admit. <laughs> well, thank you, Audrey Tan, for coming on this week's Question of the Week. Thank you for having me. And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. So let me ask you, you've also kind of I mean, you've always been interested, but more recently, you've kind of done a lot of work, and we'll talk about those JAMA internal medicine papers in a second. Um, in in overuse and low-value care, I guess, how do you define overuse and low-value care, and why is that something that interests you? Yeah, I mean, so this is, I think, something that I, I came to, I guess, just kind of on my own out of, uh, it, it fit my my personality, probably, and, and sort of my response to the medicine that I was providing. Um, and, and that just seemed that we did a lot of things that didn't fully make sense to me or where it seemed like maybe each little step made sense in some way, but then the, the net result was not very logical. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing the patients in clinic who'd have like a big Ziploc bag full of medications and say, this is what I'm taking, or, mm-hmm. you know, someone in the hospital who's just sort of going from one thing to the next to the next and obviously isn't going to get better, but we're not really uh, addressing the big picture. We're mm-hmm. kind of uh, mm-hmm. getting caught up in each little study or trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think it was that interest. And then, um, and then I kind of got into numeracy and, and how we understand, uh, you know, tests or even how well treatments work. And, and if you really sort of uh, try to extrapolate from, I guess, what we learned from evidence-based medicine about, you know, sensitivity and specificity and the positive predictive value or even just absolute risk reduction, I think the extrapolation seems what's really hard that uh, we don't have a lot of effect or we don't know what's happening that, that clearly. And and then you decided to do some work in this space. Yeah. Um, let's see. I think I met you back at a lounge meeting in uh, maybe 2012. 2012. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one you went to. So. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I was just trying to figure out um, where there was a community that worked on this. Because from the hospital epi community, um, it, it's a very strong one and very enjoyable to work with and very collaborative. Um, it. I think in overuse, it's much more kind of spread out with a few individuals in different places and even using different words to describe right. what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess um, I was just interested in trying to figure out a way to, to start looking at this in a, in a more uh, scientific way and you know figure out a community that was looking at that because it does seem just like a huge problem that's in plain sight and a lot of clinicians acknowledge it, but yet it's, it's hard to kind of research and... Uh, develop that that approach to it why don't you care about underuse um this is something that's brought up anytime you mention overuse 
Um, and, and, and I think, well, I do, but that's the rest of medicine. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, if you look at most metrics, if you look at um, most of the things that we worry about in healthcare, it's, you know, do ev- is, is everyone able to get access to what we uh, provide? And, and I do think that if you don't have health insurance, you probably do suffer from underuse. Mm-hmm. And in other countries, you probably do. But uh, I think that the healthcare that we as doctors provide often uh, is kind of blind to this part of overuse. So it's where there's a lot more room for improvement. Do you think if you, I mean, you make this point that I've heard other people make, which is that the biggest problem of underuse in this nation is access to health care, either through insurance or through socioeconomic resources to get to the doctor, to be plugged in, to have a primary care provider to have. Do you believe that for an upper middle class person who has a primary care doctor, lives in a major city near a hospital, maybe has a cardiologist and a urologist too, even though they don't really have a strong diagnosis that needs that, um, you know, I guess, do you see that, do you think that they're also suffering from underuse? Maybe it's a leading question, but... Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, this sort of a, it's like you're describing me, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm upper middle class and live in a big city and obviously understand healthcare mm-hmm. relatively well. Um, and I still find it's hard to, uh, to navigate the healthcare system. So I think, you know, probably people aren't suffering from underuse, um, you know, unless they themselves don't want healthcare. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certainly plenty of people who, who don't seek it out, even though they have access to it. But um I mean, and I do think, I mean, I guess maybe the underuse, and it's not really the way people describe underuse, is like it is actually hard to to get a good primary care doctor. It is hard to get in to see somebody, e- even with, um, you know, access and money and insurance and all that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that may be a problem or just getting things done can be a problem. But uh, typically it seems like we, you know, I, I certainly see that we do too much, but there's not that much thoughtful oversight to... We- uh, when, you, when yeah. you see a patient in, you know, when you come across that you say the doctors are doing too much, like, what, what does that look like? What does that mean to you? Like, what does it look like? Um, let's see. Well, I, I generally practice in the hospital, um, so I, I don't see people in clinic um, at all anymore. And I don't know. I mean, one example that, that kind of got me interested in this interpretation of tests was uh, I'll see patients who come up from the emergency room. Um, and, you know, I'll hear about them the next morning when the team presents them and uh, they'll say, you know, Mr. Jones is a so-and-so. He has, you know, uh, usually lung disease of some sort and cardiac disease. And he's on broad spectrum antibiotics for it's kind of unclear, but usually it said sepsis or pneumonia or something. Um, and um, so that's sort of a, a general way that comes. It happens a lot that you see people who are getting things they probably don't need because there's not a concern about doing too much. Um, I mean, with antibiotics, that happens all the time. So would you see, for instance, somebody who's got multiply refractory cancer and uh, but non-neutropenic, and they're coming in with fevers to 104 every third day um, with some associated sweating, and they come through the ED and they get a chest CT and it finds nothing. I mean, it's really kind of reassuring other than yeah. progressive lymphadenopathy from the tumor. Um, and yet, nevertheless, they get started on vancosin, uh, even though the vital signs were relatively stable. You would uh, see something like that. Oh, I mean, I, I see people treated for less <laughs> than for that. Less. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, certainly a patient like that is, is a common one to see. And, um, 
And, you know, and, 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 and you know, even you're saying Vankzosin, or I don't know if people have seen, the, there's a YouTube for Vankapim. Vankapim, yeah. Yeah, which... Vankimipenem, or carb, any carbapenem with a vank. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was Vankcephapim, was oh, the Vankapims. Yeah, Vankcephapim, yeah. But people should, should YouTube it if you haven't seen it. Uh, really high production quality. <laughs> and, and done back before sepsis was a metric, so... Oh, right. Just oh. when it was like, you know, something people, you know, wrote down as a diagnosis, but it didn't matter so much. Do you want to talk about that? Now that it's a metric kind of... The, I, I hear that the the trends in population statistics on sepsis are changing dramatically. Yeah, I mean, sepsis is everywhere. It's an epidemic. It's an epidemic, yeah. In part yeah. because people are coding it as an epidemic. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, the tongue-in-cheek part of it. You know, it's like like rust. You know, it never sleeps. It's there. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have sepsis. Um, and uh, Mike Klompus at, at Harvard did a good uh, letter. I think it's a research letter in New England Journal talking about the overdiagnosis of sepsis. And he showed that while we have a decline in all the infections that we're monitoring, so there's decreases of infections, there's still an increase in sepsis, mm-hmm. which would seem odd since sepsis is really just the conclusion of multiple types of infections. Infection, right. Um, so, so I guess what you're saying is in your clinical practice, you're confronted with overuse all the time. And I guess I would say that I feel it as well. I mean, I think that's pro- that's probably one of the sentiments we share is that when you hear about an individual story and you see what things are being pursued, um, sometimes you think that they're not always logical when you think about the big picture for this person. And and I think maybe we don't want to use the word underuse, but blind spot might be the word, which is that often in a person in whom there are many things you see as overuse, you see blind spots in care, which is that we're not really addressing the core thing that is bringing this person back and forth to the hospital. We're not even touching that. We're just overuse on the sort of peripheral issues and we're not hitting what really matters to this person. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is one of the, I mean, the, the key reasons to care about overuse. Um, it's, it's not about money. It's not about wasted dollars on CT scans or, you know, wasted cost on antibiotics in the hospital. Um, and, and even the harms of, of those, the side effects of those things may not be the primary issue, but it's just that we're ignoring sort of the, the, the key part of caring for, for this patient. I mean, I think palliative care, just having a specialty that focuses on what the patient wants and how they feel is mm-hmm. indicative of uh, the current medical system. where that, you that need we need to, such a specialty. Yeah, yeah. yeah let, let's consult somebody to talk about, you know, the big picture and what's happening and mm-hmm. what they want. <laughs> and sometimes what the patient needs is social support or things that don't fall traditionally within the domain of healthcare. Yeah, I mean I feel like as a as a hospital doctor and the VA that's that's usually the case and and I think also just someone to really explain to them and sit down with them to talk for a while. Hmm. I agree. And and sometimes maybe what they also need more than anything else is like continuity or like a primary care doctor who's just going to be there for them and and speak up and be able to voice kind of somebody's preferences when that person is not feeling like they need that they're able to voice it oh i mean i think that i mean that 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 would be i mean that you'd be a very lucky patient to to have a primary care doctor who knew you well enough and would mm-hmm. would advocate for what you would like um and and I think that's probably a, a big part of the tragedy of modern healthcare is that primary care has become so busy and so distracted that it's hard to be that primary care doctor. What is the psychological reasons why we have overuse? Oh, I mean, I, I think there's probably a, a, a number of them. And I, I think that there's a lot of those have just changed medical culture so that, uh, I mean, medical culture has kind of been formed around a, a lot of, uh, you know, people have fear of malpractice or 
think the patient wants more and so they give the patient more. And, and that's sort of developed into guidelines and just even what is standard of care. Um, but then I think on an individual level, um, you know, there's, um, th- there's certainly a, a number of different biases that people have talked about um, that, you know, kind of stem from Kahneman and Tversky's work. Um, and, and let's see, I mean, I, I think that um, a, a big part is it's hard to know actually what works or what doesn't mm-hmm. when you're seeing an individual patient. Right. And I think it's another big part is that it's difficult to stand there and do nothing when you could be doing something, even if that something is something that's like not very useful. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's, uh, John Mandrola had a good uh, piece about this uh, with the uh, conspicuous caring. Yeah. And, and I think that says a lot about why it's, it's hard to do less mm-hmm. because it, it actually takes a lot more effort to show a patient that you, you care about them because you're not writing a script for an antibiotic. You're not, uh, you know, sending them for a scan. Um, but instead, you're talking to them. And and you've been talking about this for a few minutes now, but you haven't mentioned the profit motive. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that the system functions a lot on the profit side. I think individual doctors are, I don't know, I mean, uh, maybe it's, uh, I try to give doctors the benefit of the doubt. And I think in general, like for individual patient care, they're not thinking about the dollars and cents of it. But I think the system that rewards things and that builds, you know, cardiac cath labs instead of primary care clinics, you know, certainly makes it easier to to do the things that the system pays for. Mm -hmm. And we'll be back with more of the interview. But first, let's take a break for a question of the week. I'm back here in plenary session HQ with Ian Straley for question of the week, inspired by USMLE Step 2 CK. Ian, it's great to have you. Good to be back, as always. Time flies when you're having fun. Indeed it does. It step, just, it was, step two questions. Step two questions. It was just last week that we chatted. People still do step two questions after they've done step two, right? Just for fun? Yeah. In fact, the way these uh, audio, this audio will actually come out is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pre- pretty much. You'll have passed step two, I hope. But you're still doing questions. Yeah, yeah. When, when you compete in, say, a bodybuilding contest, do you stop lifting weights the moment the contest is over? No. And similarly, you don't stop step two CK questions when you're done. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Good analogy. Perfect analogy. <laughs> well, all right. So what do you got for us this week? All right. So this week we have a 62-year-old gentleman who presents with anemia, altered mental status, hypercalcemia, renal failure, recurrent infections, and an elevated protein gap. His vitals and exam are consistent with marked anemia, so conjunctival pallor and tachycardia. His chest x-ray shows osteopenia. His blood smear is normal, and a bone marrow biopsy is performed. So the question is, what will be seen on biopsy? Option A, metastatic lung cancer. Option B, plasma cytosis. Option C, fungal invasion. Option D, myelogenous blasts. Option E, mature lymphocytes. Hmm, that's a good question. So you're telling me this person has hypercalcemia, renal dysfunction, anemia, and this person has a protein albumin gap, but it doesn't tell you how big that gap is. Correct, just elevated. I say, well, and this person gets a bone marrow for diagnostic purposes. Yes, and there's some osteopenia on chest x-ray. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Osteopenia, not lytic lesions, but be that as it may, I believe this person suffers from a diagnosis and they're giving you all of the criteria, the so-called crab criteria, yep. and this person is suffering from multiple myeloma. 
and the correct. diagnosis will be plasma cells bursting through the marrow, plasma cytosis. That is correct. Plasma cytosis um, is what you would see on bone marrow biopsy in multiple myeloma. I think some of the distractors here are things that people would have been tempted to go for is maybe myelogenous blasts or mature lymphocytes, um, potentially metastatic lung cancer, although the chest x-ray was, um, yeah. you know, showed osteopenia, nothing there. Um, so I think we, it would be worth talking about, you know, why you wouldn't see myelogenous blasts or when you would see those, uh, and then mature lymphocytes. Yeah, I guess I'd say the answer to those questions are, I mean, I think lung cancer can easily give you hypercalcemia, but then what you probably would see is like a large mass on the chest x-ray or something like that is probably what they're going to give you on the boards. Lymphoma can give you hypercalcemia, but you'd see like bulky lymphadenopathy and probably like osseous erosions. I think in this case, it's just kind of classic textbook question for multiple myeloma. They're giving you the calcium, the anemia, the renal dysfunction. Um, they're not giving you the lytic bony lesions, but that's the only thing they stop short of. Um, and they give you the protein albumin gap. And so when you see protein albumin gap, there's only a sort of a handful of conditions that you start to think about. And myeloma is high on that list. So okay. I think it's a pretty clear cut case of, of myeloma. Okay. And then uh, with um, just as I was going through this to review things, um, the myelogenous blasts are associated with AML, indicative of AML, and then mature lymphocytes would be indicative of CLL. Oh, I see what they're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. As far as other things people maybe thought of when they heard those answer choices. Yeah, it's not AML, but <laughs> that's how, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, my, yeah, okay, that's good, it's good, that's one that, um, I guess I didn't see what you were really getting at, because I thought that was quite obvious to me, so I guess that, that's one thing, that you get blinders on, I think, when you do this. Once you're a hematologist Yeah, I think you're blinders, yeah, okay, well, thank you, Ian, for the question of the week. You're very welcome, we'll uh, do it again soon. We'll do it again soon. And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. Now, tell me a little bit about your publications now. So it's been four or five years in a row, four years in a row in JAM Internal Medicine. Yeah, we have the fifth year coming out. Uh, the, the update in uh, medical overuse uh, should be, uh, I think, in the next two weeks it will be out. Wonderful. And, uh, and this was um, something that started out after the Lown meeting yeah. and uh, meeting Rita Redberg at, at JAM Internal Medicine. And uh, with Debbie Kornstein, Sanket Druva, um, and a few others, we've started looking at the literature every year to try to identify articles that relate to overuse um, that are clinically oriented for practicing uh, physicians. Uh, are any sort of things that jump out at you in the last year, I guess, since you just put it together as a little spoiler alert, or, or you could do a little year before? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's, I'd say there's usually a, a range of um, kind of similar topics. I mean, some of them are medical reversals, like there's a new trial showing that this doesn't work, so we should stop, uh, I don't know, treating PFOs, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in people who have uh, um, stroke, I say. Um, but, uh, and, and then there's often something relating to testing and overdiagnosis, and then a little bit related to, to policy, and if there's some kind of intervention that may help with overuse. Um, this year's, I mean, some of the, the, I'm trying to remember exactly what, what made it, made the cut, because we talked about a lot of articles um, over, over that time. Um, I mean, there, there were some interesting observational studies, like with using corticosteroids in primary care. Um, there's a, a letter to the editor in JAM Internal Medicine that 
I think it may have uh, been an honorable mention and not the primary one, but like uh, that there's lots of uh, use of injectable um, steroids and in outpatient uh, treatment of um, people with bronchitis. Hmm. Um, that's like double the rates in the South than, uh, than the rest of the country. Yeah, I see. So those kinds of like huge regional imbalance suggesting that uh, th- this can't be motivated by patient preference or medical necessity. It's got to be motivated by something else. Yeah. Um, th- I mean, there's almost always something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this kind of Dartmouth Health Atlas type approach to, to looking at healthcare. Um, How many items make the final cut in these lists? Oh, yeah. So we, um, so we have 10 um, articles that make the final cut, and then we've named like 10 on- honorable mention articles. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some choice items from this year's list? So um, yeah, out of the, the 10 items that we found... Um, there, there were a range of interesting things. One was a systematic review that uh, you probably are aware of. Um, it was done by uh, John Yanodi's group, mm-hmm. and it's looking at the frequency of incidental findings on C- on um, imaging studies. It's the BMJ paper. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's by yes. Jack O'Sullivan. Yeah. Um, and and we thought that one was just worth highlighting. And they looked at a lot of. Um, different studies trying to look at a screening test so that they would know that people were asymptomatic when when they did these scans and and found that um, about a third of people who have uh, an MRI or CT including cardiac CTs will, will have an incidental finding that that requires some sort of follow-up um, so we, th- we thought that was very interesting just because it's it, it illustrates how frequently you have um, sort of uh, often irrelevant um, findings, but require the patient to do something else. Yeah, it's the um, medicalization of potentially up to a third of people. Yeah. It, and, makes uh, you, it makes you somebody who needs follow-up, but that follow-up is entirely unproven. Like nobody, I mean, we're constantly following up thyroid nodules or adrenal nodules. There is not a shred of evidence that suggests that doing that follow-up versus not doing it confers any benefit to the person from quality of life to peace of mind to overall survival to anything. And yet we're just constantly on these treadmills where we're just doing more and more studies. Yeah. I mean, this, um, I mean, actually I'm, I'm working on a, an editorial with John Mandrola about, mm. um, clinical cascades. Yes. And certainly I, I think that's been in, in my thoughts lately, just how, how much there is this extra information that seems concerning and it's unclear what to do with it. And, uh, and, and these lead to these clinical cascades. So one test that leads to another, that leads to another. And, and I think frequently, you know, will lead to harm of some sort. Yeah. And everyone's worried, I think, of, as you point out, the, the malpractice idea, which is that all it takes is one person not following one cascade one day and one bad outcome that may or may not be attributable to that not following. Um, but that could be the grounds of litigation. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a, a, a huge problem that, uh, um, you know, it, it's really hard to to ignore a result of some sort, even if that's in the patient's best interest. And uh, and I do think for lawsuits, it's a pretty easy narrative to tell that like, hey, there was a chest x-ray showing a nodule and you ignored it and mm-hmm. they had cancer later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what, what they didn't tell you was in uh, another patient who had a chest x-ray with the nodule, you you acted upon it, that person had a VAT, um, they required a prolonged chest tube, they were intubated and that nodule turned out to be benign hematoma or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting that it's hard I mean, uh, I, I've tried to propose this some um, to like people who do medical malpractice. Like, you know, well, you know, if, if malpractice is out there to improve care, well, like, well, we should try to have it focus on uh, errors of all sorts. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, and so, well, there's these harms of doing things where, you know, like they, you know, do a hemorrhoid repair and then, uh, you know, someone dies from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that narrative is just one that doesn't stick with people, especially in the, the malpractice field. <laughs> yeah, I think they're 
they they're in need of some serious revision because I was talking to them and they say that you know um, that if there was a situation where the evidence said do A but the local doctors on average were doing B the litigation would favor doing B over doing A even if A is like supported by the highest quality of evidence yeah uh, and so it's really kind of this thing to stay in the herd mentality irrespective of whatever whichever direction that herd is going even if they're going in a backwards direction yeah yeah i mean i, I was i had some hopes that maybe uh, malpractice could could lead to better care <laughs> yeah i had some i think and i think that's the sad thing about it which is that it is um it it, it is uh, certainly not always used appropriately and certainly does not and is not by itself a way a tool to really get what we need which is that average care needs to be delivered a lot better i think so tell us what else do you have on your list yeah so um Let's see some of the other interesting ones. Um, there, there's another article. I, I, there, there have been previous articles talking about this, but we thought it was relevant to highlight that uh, that mammograms are often performed in people with stage four cancer. Mm. Um, so tell. Let's just talk about that a second. A person already has an advanced stage cancer, which is almost surely going to be a life limiting event, and yet there is somebody so bold that they think undergoing a screening test for an early entirely different cancer is going to somehow benefit this person yeah and in, in this study that we highlight i think they found a nine percent of people in in this group um received screening mammograms even though they were already dying of, of a, another cancer it's total madness you know one thing i hear people who are critical of overuse uh, of of talking about overuse say is that well everything's trade-offs everything is trade-offs nothing is without trade-offs there are trade-offs everywhere so what are the trade-offs with getting a mammogram when you have stage four non-small cell lung cancer? What are, what's the upside? I mean, that's that's the <laughs> the good question. Like, what are the benefits? I, I think the only thing that I could imagine uh, someone arguing is, uh, you know, I'll let the patient know that you're not giving up on them or something. Oh, I see, right. It's just like the psychological comfort of doing something right. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, but I think it does kind of por- portray that, um, that, I mean, I think this idea that everything is trade-offs is a bit foolish because we do know there are some things that are net harmful, yeah. for instance. I mean, there's some things that are clearly net harmful. So there is not a trade-off. There might be some gains, but it's offset by massive harms. This is almost surely something that's net harmful. Um, you could do a lot more studies to, to document it's net harmful, but it lacks even common sense reasons to pursue it as a beneficial strategy. So it should be abandoned. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think this is just an example of like the uh, the far end. I mean, I think yes. mammograms alone, you know, are uh-huh. something where you discuss them in terms of trade offs, and uh-huh. you know, I wouldn't in be healthy one... risk people who are yeah, right, yeah, and healthy life. women in their fifties. You know, it's it's a trade off to think about, and yes. you know, certainly you hear uh, notable editors of you know journals who you know or women in that age range who say they they didn't get mammograms right um people who are very well educated have declined personally um and you also have proponents i'll say proponents is the right word um who uh you know think that they're underutilized and should be utilized more widely but you know when push comes to shove i think um people are unwilling to have the honest conversation which is that in pooled meta-analytic analysis we don't have an all-cause mortality benefit. We don't have a health-related quality of life benefit. That's not even been an endpoint people have cared about. We have a cause-specific mortality benefit driven more by older studies than more recent studies. And that's why it's a very great thing. 
And I think trade-off sometimes is used as an excuse for saying there's trade-offs, but what they really mean to say is that, well, you know what, in the 50 years of having this practice, we have never done any really, really good studies that would definitively answer which direction the net vector of benefit or harm goes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think the people who, uh, I mean, who really believe in overuse or who look at that are the people who actually are focused on trade-offs. Like what are, you know, mm. what are um, apples to apples comparisons of, uh, you know, harms and benefits of care? And, and I think when you look at it that way, it's uh, a lot of what we do is kind of, you know, marginally beneficial or marginally harmful. Um, so just like a lot of noise, that's kind of a distraction. That's well put. What else do you have on your list? This is good. Oh, um, let's see. Well, there, there's an interesting article that looked at urgent care clinics. Um, they looked at administrative data from, uh, I think, the Truven database of over uh, 10,000 clinics. And, and as probably most of your listeners know, urgent care clinics you know, are a huge development in medicine. There's lots of them. They're easy to use, and they kind of stream people away from ERs because mm -hmm. there's less hassle. Um, but this was looking at antibiotic use and found that um, oh, it, a huge proportion of people who go into urgent care end up getting antibiotics. Um, there's, um, out of those people with viral illness, about 45% get antibiotics in an urgent care clinic. Oh, boy. Um, compared to 25% in an emergency room or 17% for such primary care visits. It's almost like they're selling the service of we'll give you what you want, and what you want is an antibiotic because you feel sick, and antibiotics help people who feel sick. I mean, I think that's exactly what it is, and that's what urgent care clinics are kind of made for. Like, you know, you feel unwell, you want to be seen, but you're not particularly sick um, and not going to a hospital emergency room. Um, but, you know, what can you do for a patient who has a viral syndrome, seeing them once without follow-up? Well, you can give them antibiotics and, you know, order a chest x-ray and, uh, you know, do these things that you shouldn't be doing. You know, maybe let me toss this out as a little idea, which is that the, the mere rise of these clinics is yet another way in which overuse is failing us. Let me, let me make my connection yeah. and maybe see where I'm going. Because we have a healthcare system so focused on, you know, cath and surgeries and all these kind of procedural, technical, subspecialty focused healthcare. Uh, and because we have, I think, to a large degree, neglect of primary care, we, as, uh, we find new ways to make the job thankless by tying people's salary to the percent of women who get mammograms in their clinic and other <laughs> stupid things like that. I mean, we make it unappealing. We also make the patient experience in primary care not the same as a specialty patient experience. Primary care, they're not running with a lot of NPs and PAs and nurses and nurse coordinators in the back room like an oncology clinic might run. Yeah. They're not getting that kind of um, somebody helping them to coordinate their schedule, figure out their travel, connect them with social work, you know, all these kinds of things. They're not getting that service. And so what you find is if you're an average person, you don't really go to the PCP that often, and one day you feel really, really sick, you want to get in to see that PCP, it may not be easy. They may not have an appointment this week. They may not have somebody who can help you coordinate that schedule. They may not have an NP who can shoot in and see somebody real quick. And so the market for these, I think, places that, you know, they, they lease the space next to the Taco Bell and then they hang up a sign and then they have, you know, an urgent care clinic. The market for that exists because we don't do a good job in like providing basic primary care services to the population. And so you're not going to get a doctor who's going to spend the extra five minutes explaining to you that I'm sorry, I know you feel lousy just lay in bed and drink fluids and have some hot soup and that's really all you need and take it easy and like skip some work and, and get some more sleep and you'll feel, you will feel better I promise you um, and instead you just get somebody saying that you know 25 bucks and here's your z-pack 
<laughs> get get your burritos and yeah. antibiotics, antibiotics side by side yeah. right next and then you can go to taco bell next door <laughs> yeah um i mean i think th- that's very much the case I, I, uh we've been doing a study uh enrolling primary care doctors trying to get a sense of how they make medical decisions and uh it's it's been a questionnaire that takes some time to do so um, as a way of trying to recruit them, I've been going to clinics with the coordinator just to show that it's important to me, that sort of thing. And, and what, what's really stood out is just how busy primary care doctors are, that to get them for a half hour during lunch when they're not writing notes is, uh, you know, takes, takes some pressure and takes some, some pushing to actually get in the door just because they have so many things that they do all the time. I think it's... Um you know, you always hear about people who want to have like their disruptive innovation, finding a way to make a clinic uh, that makes primary care doctors be able to work more at the top of their license and take away these administrative burdens and bureaucracies and free them and empower them to make choices that they think are right without these stupid metrics and policies. You do that and you're going to increase the number of people going to primary care you're going to make it a more satisfying job. You're going to reduce the burnout, and you're going to make care better. I'm pretty confident. But yeah. I would test it in a randomized trial. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that I mean that, that would really be the a huge innovation and something that would, would you know be a game changer. A real game changer, <laughs> right. All right. So I guess I'd say um, the title of this series is, I think, I haven't read it in a while, but Updates and Overuse and the Year. Yeah, so this uh, the one that's coming up will be 2019 Update on Medical Overuse. Update on Medical Overuse, and it's a great series. And so I guess I'd say, I mean, tell me if you agree with this, that your update and overuse, you know, the papers that we published on medical reversals, documenting reversals, uh, Adam Elshog from Australia has their list of 140 um, uh, low-value practices. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we're all speaking the same language here. We're all trying to do complementary work to each other because the mountain of overuse is so big that no one of us um, can can see all sides of the elephant. I mean, I, th- I think that uh, I agree with you. And I, I think that there's like a, a whole range of different people working in the general area of overuse. I mean, outside of the people you just mentioned, I mean, the Dartmouth overdiagnosis people, mm-hmm. um, you know, more of the evidence-based medicine crowd like John Yanodis mm-hmm. and, and others. Um, there's a high value care committee um, that's out of Hopkins, but a lot of academic places have hospitalists and others who are trying to work on kind of quality improvement projects. Um, you know, the different journals that have a, a specific um, area focused on overuse. There, there's a lot happening, but it's not not necessarily everyone comes together in, in any one place. Hmm. And um, and strangely, we're not the ones um, uh, backed by the industry support. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's there's not a lot of money in overuse. Yeah, it's it's it, it threatens, I think, established money at sometimes to identify these overuse practices, and that's why I, I think um, I, I think that that kind of explains why we're all so fragmented and and and, and disparate. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess just to push on that idea a little bit, like you know, say for instance, like I think about my colleagues who are like disease-specific experts in non-small cell lung cancer, and they're all often seem very close. But then when you when you observe them, they're all going to like the same lecture series, the same conferences, um, the same CME activities. Yeah. And and those are principally funded by the industry. And and part of the reason why they're so close and they think alike is they're being piped messages, I think, principally by the industry. Whereas in contrast, there are very few opportunities that Dan and I have to see each other at a conference. The Lown Institute 
I, I can't remember the last time I went to the last one. I think it was a few years ago. But even that is, um, you know, it's a nonprofit institute that doesn't always host an annual conference most years, but not always. The BMJ has been a leader here with too much medicine and um, and and JAMA Internal Medicine. I think has has done more than I think arguably any other place in terms of bringing this idea forward. I think in an era where it was a very thorny idea, as an idea that threatened a lot of people, and they brought it into the mainstream. And then I think, like all all movements, you know, there's some pushback. Uh, some articles in the New England Journal that say uh, the less is more crusade. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that? Those the pushback that you're you're just a crusader, <laughs> like all crusaders, hell bent on your on your religious devotion to your cause. Yeah, no, I mean, af- after seeing that article, I, I probably uh, like a lot of people. I, I, you know, I started drafting a reply and then, uh, you know, left it alone. And I think Steve Wolution or or someone else re- responded to it, but uh, it it did seem like a, a real pushback from the status quo. Um, yeah, crowd. they're doing a great job. <laughs> And I think, I don't know, at the end of the day, what what I come to is that it is it goes back to your bug and ICU point that you were making early on, which I think is so true, which is that, yes, these trials are negative, And yes, there are things you can point to and say, I might have wanted that to be different. But the real question you have to ask yourself is, what evidence do you have of a higher degree that is positive? Because I think this entire idea that we can ask people who are critical of therapies to produce negative evidence, that's not the way the world works. You, you, drug makers don't go to the FDA and say, I wanted my new drug approved for cancer. Until you do a study that shows it kills people, we're gonna sell this drug. <laughs> we have the opposite system. You have to prove your drug works to come on the market. And and some of us believe that, that rules for proving it are getting more lax. But certainly we don't have a system where you have to prove it doesn't work to keep it off the market. That's just stupid. And And yet that is the system we have for and I think we have to draw the distinction. Like, why do the procedures, the systems interventions, often have this inversion of the burden of proof? It's because there is no regulatory authority um, controlling this. There is no FDA in these spaces. I could be a surgeon and I could innovate my own surgery and I could say it's an innovation and no one will stop me. Yeah, yeah, and until there's a, a trial of you know sham procedures or not, right. you know, it could become the new thing. It could become the new thing. Um, and, and I think some of the agencies that do oversee hospitals, like in the quality improvement realm that I spend a lot of time, um, their focus is really like, well, what can be done? What could we do? And it's really not looking at the evidence behind it. You know, I mean, this is the case, I think, for infection control, like, you know, testing the water for Legionella, even if you don't have um, mm-hmm. people getting Legionnaires disease or, you know, different metrics that are monitored that, you know, we know that those metrics are associated with people doing better, but we have no idea that measuring them and reporting them, you know, makes any difference. So I guess I'd say, what are your thoughts on, your final thoughts on overuse, what this work has taught you? about your career. I mean, I think you you derive a lot of satisfaction from doing this work. I mean, you think it's meaningful. And congratulations, you've been promoted to full professor recently, I hear. Um, and I think that's well-deserved and probably a bit overdue. Uh, I don't know, what do you want to see going forward? Like, what, what do you hope comes of all this? I mean, I, I think that there... I mean, I think that the acceptance of the idea of overuse and even the terms high-value and low-value care... Um, is a big change from 10 years ago um, that really people didn't seem to be thinking or questioning those things, at least in my training programs. Um, so I think that things are a bit better, like in terms of like, at least intellectually, there there are different voices out there and there are people sort of discussing this. Um, but 
it it does seem like it's it's a hard thing to change in the system. That the system is looking for you know big new developments, and that's usually not not cutting back or sort of reassessing how we do things. Um, but but I do think it, you know for, especially for some you know if there's people listeners who are you know junior physicians looking for for work to do that kind of thing. I think to me this is the most meaningful way to spend my time. That this feels like okay if I make small changes and can can influence some of the ways that we actually deliver healthcare to to not waste th- on uh, you know inefficient healthcare or harmful healthcare. It can maybe make healthcare better for people. So I think it really is a more meaningful aspect of uh, of my work, and and that's why it's worth spending the time, even if I'm not sure how well it's going to turn out. Yeah, I I think that's so well put. Um, and I guess the only thing that makes me think about is also when you look at like the United States healthcare spending over time as percent of GDP. I think anyone would recognize that it just can't go on forever like this. And people talk about how ACA has bent the cost curve, and it's bent it, but it's still on the up. There's got to be a point at which one wonders what is going on in society when you start spending 20% of GDP on healthcare, 25%, 30%, 35%, 40%, 50%. At some point, and all the trade-offs that occur at a societal level, be it from you know infrastructure that's not getting developed and, and school lunches that are still lousy and all these kinds of things that we're not doing um, – and and it would be one thing if everything we were doing in healthcare had proven benefits and really works, but it's absolutely another thing when we suspect that much of what we do um, probably does little to nothing. Some of it may even be harmful. It's certainly very costly, and there's certainly a lot of psychological forces to continue it, and it threatens other domains where we could be making a bigger difference for human beings in this world. No, I mean, I, th- I think... I agree completely. And this was highlighted, I think, by, uh, I mean, some early work, even in the 70s, there's uh, some sociologists, McKinley and McKinley is, is one where they, they have these curves of mortality going down that like we live much longer now than we used to. But that really, most of those gains occurred before the 50s and 60s. And then you see the rise in the proportion of GDP that goes towards healthcare. And and I think when they published back in the 70s, you know, it was just like 8% of, of GDP or so. But already, like the mortality curves were pretty flat. And now we even see in the U.S. that there's declining mortality, you know, largely due to the opioid epidemic. But we keep spending more and more. So obviously, we're not getting any kind of return for society. And it's not like there aren't better things that we could be spending our money on. Yeah. Well, that's well said. So, Dan Morgan, thank you for coming on the plenary session stage. Uh, This has been a fascinating discussion about hospital transmission as well as overuse. And I think I encourage listeners to read your series. Uh, It's the fifth year now. Uh, It's a good series. Uh, It's one that's always on my uh, my annual to-read list. And uh, and congrats to you and your co-authors, Deb Kornstein and and Sunkit Druva, who... Uh, uh, who uh, one day I'll get a, I'll get Sunkit on the podcast because he's been done some wonderful work on devices. So I guess keep up the good work and um, and and people who are interested in overuse on the East Coast want to work with you in Baltimore. Should they reach out to you? Trainings? Yeah, um, find me on the internet. Send an email. Okay, <laughs> thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, great chatting. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? 
tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.